I'm here this morning in my studio with some kind of digital recording device, which is not as good as my recording studio sound. So if anyone's offended by the sound being less than perfect, then think of yourself as a less than perfect person who can't deal with sound that's not perfect, okay? I didn't mean to offend anybody, but I'm a little bit in a mode of technology overload. And now I'm on my phone. And I'm connected to a person whom I greatly admire at the end, the other end of the continent. So I should really, I should really not take this technology for granted. I should revere it and be in awe of its great power in spite of the fact that the fidelity is not 100%. On the other end of the line is a person. Uh, his name is Yeshua November. It's one of the greatest names I've heard in the last couple decades. He is, and if there were a little drum roll sound effect, I would roll it out first. And I want to prepare you for, for his title because people have all sorts of thoughts about a person who does this kind of work, which I'll soon enunciate uh, in these modern times. Yeshua November is a poet. He's a poet and I met him, I guess, years ago. He was a kid, and I happened to be doing, I don't know, something at his school. I don't remember him from all the other smart kids. But I met his father, and his father told me that my son is a poet. And I didn't roll my eyes on the outside, but I did sort of roll my eyes on the inside because, like, I don't know, who's a poet? Well, somebody sent me... Uh, Yeshua November's first book of poetry and I started reading it and I got goosebumps which is something that I'm good at if I hear something that responds uh, that I respond to I get goosebumps it's like music or art or the spoken word or written word this guy gave me goosebumps and chills he writes, I believe, if it's fair to say, through the prism of a religious faith. I hate to use the word religion because it's kind of a trope and it's misunderstood, and perhaps he and I will unravel the misunderstanding in this conversation. But he became a very observant Jew following Jewish ritual and so on at some point in his young life, so he's writing through that prism. But the beauty of it is, from my point of view, is that he is so open-minded and so transparent and so able to pick out the inconsistencies and the paradoxes within religious practice and in, within the universe itself. He delves into the minutiae so well. Some of his work, has literally brought me to tears. And I feel, as we all feel about the things that we, we love, we feel ourselves in those poems. So I would like to introduce you all on the Big Muse podcast to Yeshua November. Yeshua, what's the weather like where you're sitting right now? Uh, it's not bad right now. We just we just overcame a, a storm and a lot of rain. But I'm doing all right right now. And you thanks were, for that thanks for the introduction. <laughs> I always actually I always I always uh, was insecure about calling myself a poet because I thought people would laugh at me. So you kind of reinforced that fear. 
Well, it's good to have a little fear, but it keeps you it keeps you on your toes, you know, it keeps you honest. Um, where are you actually now? What city? I'm in Teaneck, New Jersey, uh, where I live. And, and you teach uh, you teach at Rutgers, right? Right, I teach at Rutgers University and uh, Turo College. Rutgers and, is in uh, New Brunswick, and, and uh, Turo I teach in Brooklyn. And what do you teach? I mean, I'm assuming some kind of writing, not like that. Yeah, I teach uh, creative writing and then also some uh, composition classes like uh, essays, uh, expository writing. So tell me, in, in terms of, you know, how you view students and what their needs are, What what is it that you believe that you are trying to impart to these students and what do you think their needs are? Well, you know, it really depends on, on which class you're teaching. Uh, for example, uh, in, in Rutgers, one of the classes that I teach is um, an intro to creative writing course, which fulfills a, a college requirement. So sometimes you have students in the course who are not necessarily interested or they don't know that they're interested in writing. Uh, they think they're just there to fulfill a requirement. Um, and so I try to you know, open them up to the possibilities of writing. Um, a lot of them, I think... Uh, I like to focus on poetry, and a lot of them, I think, uh, have a kind of perception uh, that poetry is something that's inaccessible to them, something that's like a kind of mystery they have to solve or a riddle, and probably that's because when they were in high school, they were uh, only exposed to poetry from previous centuries, which spoke in almost like a different language, um, and they never really assumed that poetry could just, the meaning on the, on the surface of the page could actually be the real meaning. So I try to uh, expose them to work that uh, is acce- immediately accessible, and it's very refreshing to see when when they actually realize that poetry could be a vehicle for, for their expression of their concerns and something that's you know not elite, something that's not beyond them. Uh, so so that's really what I try to to, to do in, in that kind of class to show them that um, it, it could be a vehicle for for the expression of, of their feelings and their thoughts. And it's very rewarding at the end of the semester, for example, when a student will say, thank you for introducing me to myself again. Wow, because they just that's, didn't, that's they just didn't. Yeah, it's a very special feeling. So they just didn't, didn't, I guess, examine their life that closely, or even if they did, they never had a chance to express it through any kind of artistic medium. So that's like my primary kind of concern uh, in a class like that, just, trying to get people reacquainted with uh, their feelings and and trying to figure out ways to express it and not to um, present poetry as a kind of lofty experience. And also, you know, when you think of poetry in that way, it's uh, very stilting because you you assume you have to produce something magnificent. And whenever you sit down to produce something magnificent, uh, you never will. So (laughs) So true, right. So I try to give them, like, uh, prompts each class and try to give them prompts that are kind of strange. Like, for example, one time I said, uh, right, uh, start with a prompt that uh, in the dream my father reprimanded me for wearing earmuffs indoors. So just try to start with weird things that will, you know, make them feel that they don't have to write something that serious. And then really interesting things happen. And, 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 you know, in this spirit, sometimes you see that you give a student an assignment and they'll work very hard on it and they'll type it up and they'll, and they'll hand it in. And it might not be as strong as some of the work that they that they write on the spot in their notebooks. 
in the prompt in class. So it's a kind of just uh, experience where you try to get people reacquainted with themselves, their emotions, what they're thinking, what they're feeling, that things that they just might not really be in touch with in, in their daily life because they're worried about their other kinds of classes, uh, business classes, uh, engineering classes. So it's a ch- it's a, like a moment when their subjective self actually matters. So that, that's uh, I guess I think that's an unusual experience for some people in, in an academic setting. It sounds like you're giving people you know a break in a certain way from first of all from judgment, uh, which is kind of paradoxical because here they are writing something and, and entering into a right. world that might feel foreign to them. And also a break from from the sort of left brain process oriented work that they do, whether you know you just mentioned business or trying to do something for purposes of achievement and, and really for purposes of making money, which is so much of what uh, college education has become for people. It's almost like a trade school. So here you are offering them this opportunity for introspection. I, I wonder a couple of things. How does the hip-hop culture, which is so rich in, you know, in sort of literate energy, how does it affect these students? Uh, so you, you have a handful of students that are always uh, interested in that in that kind of music. It's actually interesting. I have a friend who's also a poet, um, and uh, uh, happens to be a religious Jew. Also, his name is David Kaplan, and he wrote a book uh, recently uh, in which he analyzes and, and, and kind of breaks down the um, technical virtuosity of contemporary rap artists and he compares their work with that of uh, contemporary poets and in, in his estimation it seems like those uh, the, the R&B artists are actually doing more complex things with form and rhyme and meter because a lot of a lot of the contemporary poetry kind of departed from that uh, starting with the Walt Whitman because there's a belief that America is a, a kind of a, a natural organic country and people are naturalists and therefore they have to depart from rhyme and meter in right. poetry and so that was a good that so in a lot of contemporary poetry my own poetry i don't really use form very much um but definitely that you have a number of students who who are interested in that i try actually uh i do encourage that but i also try to get them to write outside of form as well just so that they could be more free in terms of what they what they want to say and not be beholden to the form. Then it's there's also times, yeah. yeah. I was going to say the, times, the form yeah. too is can be very genitive, you know, paradoxically yeah. of of you know here's the form. It's like your earmuff prompt. You know, we're working <laughs> on this yeah. little space here. Oh, that's very freeing because now I can free myself up from the thousands and infinite number of other options, and I'm just working on this. Some cases it's it's very free, but what you're going to say? Yes, I mean so I try at first at the beginning of class to not have them rhyme or use form, just because a lot of them assume that that's what poetry is, and I want them to be freer to kind of just express what they're what they're feeling. But then later, maybe later in the semester, we'll use some form because form also is liberating in, in that it can take you to a place that you would never go if you didn't use form. So I think it's a balance, you know, you, you try to use both. But because people come in with such a strong sense that all poetry rhymes, especially if they're not exposed to contemporary poetry, at least towards the beginning of the class, I try to uh, stray from that. 
Yeah, it's interesting how, you know, first of all, music, I was thinking about the hip-hop culture and artists in general. I mean, they're, even though they're messing around with incredible rhythms and phrasing and so on, they're, they're kind of dogmatically stuck into form. And songs themselves are like that, you know, a song that doesn't rhyme, which I've written, you know, a few, several, they're, they're the rarity for me. And it's kind of, it's kind of funny how the mind hears the musicality of a rhyming word. Uh, and sometimes, as you said, it, it's kind of like a closed world. I may not relate as well to certain ideas, this ideas of freedom and modernity, um, which I don't know that your stuff has rhymed at all in the two books that I've read. Um, and no, I was yeah, thinking, and I think if it had, it would strike me as, you know, very strange. I, I just I looked through your most recent book, uh, Two Worlds Exist. This is it seemed like I hate to use the word. Um, so why use the word that you don't like to use? It's a little bit uh, less sort of aspirational. It sort of has a, I was going to use the word darker, for lack of a better uh-huh. word. Yeah. But yeah. but I but somehow uh, it it hit me even more forcefully than your than your previous book. I've just made some notes on some things that I saw in these uh, poems, and I just want to look at them and maybe ask you a couple of questions. This one I I really liked, and and if you don't mind, I'll I'll read it for for the listeners. It's called Falling from the Sky, and it's very personal because it talks about, you know, detail of your life that clearly from the first line is very challenging. Um, Falling from the Sky. When we found out our daughter had gone deaf, I did not question God's fairness not out of faith, but because my whole life it had always seemed that at the next moment terrible news would fall from the sky as punishment perhaps for a particular transgression, but more likely because whatever you think could never happen must happen. And in this way, you know clearly there is a world you do not see. So for me, it's so emotional, and not just because of the subject matter. There's something so beautiful for me about this world you don't see, which is, stands in uh, distinction to the beginning, which just sounds sort of like this is going to be a really painful thing. And for me, the ending is kind of a reward. Do you see that uh, in this thing? As a reward? I, I guess it's a kind of like a release, like a, uh, a release from the pain or, or, the, or the tension. I, I think it's almost like, you know, the, the, of course, uh, the moment that you get bad news, you're overwhelmed and you're knocked down. Um, but then I guess after after some time, you kind of think about, how I mean, if you believe uh, that this you know kind of uh, truth underlying everything, and you know this is an unusual thing to happen, you kind of w- wonder you know why it happened to you, 
and you kind of see it as a almost like you're you're picked out for it in a strange kind of way, or that your child is picked out for that in a strange kind of way. Um, and not that you have answers, or that you know it it's not a struggle anymore. Uh, but it's kind of like you know seeing it not a, not as random whatsoever. And even though it's a painful thing, you kind of feel almost like you were handpicked for this struggle in a way. So, yeah, I mean, uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's a strange, it, it kind of feels like almost like a release from this tension. I, I think earlier in the poem I was kind of speaking about how, you know, when you grow up in a traditional uh, home, uh, even if your parents are, my parents were very open and very supportive, but, you know, there's always this kind of uh, uh, archetype or stereotype of uh, God is wanting to punish people and, and you you know you kind of get that sense even if that's you know not particular to your religion but you kind of get that feeling oh you're going to be punished for something and that's always like hanging over you kind of like a cloud uh, and, and I guess I guess you know certain people have a kind of more uh, uh, negative outlook and they always think something you know is a, a foreboding is going to happen uh, but I, I kind of just felt like after this happened it was you know again something like you were selected for almost. And not that it's easy, but it, you just feel a kind of purposefulness to it or kind of strange uh, selectivity about it. Right. So you seem to be describing something of a mission. And, you know, that's such a faithful conception, faith-filled conception of the world that there's a, this challenge, this circumstance has now made you even more certain that there's a whole world sort of like we're living on the tip of the iceberg and what we conceive of as reality is just that. It's just the tip and there's this whole other world with all sorts of meaning and perhaps justifications for what's happening. And that's why I use the words almost reward or that you said release of tension, that, that, that there's bigger answers here. And those aren't just, I believe, in in your thinking and based on what I know of you from your work, that these are these are ideas that are real to you. What what how would you describe the impact on your life of this quote unseen world? Well, you know, uh I, I guess in, in this poem specifically, you know, everybody has the way that they want to see their life unfold, the things they want to see happen, and uh, and always that's obviously a very narrow uh, conception of the way things really are. Uh, um, uh, and I guess when something like that happens, you get kind of confounded, and, and like I said, you kind of knocked down. But in a certain way, it opens you up to a much larger reality to 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 be broken in that way. You know, kind of uh, lets you see that the world is much larger than your own. Small borders that you that you try to uh, superimpose on reality. Um, it's kind of really just very humbling, and you just say, uh, "I guess I'm really not in control." Uh, and again, at the same time, it seems like there's some, you know, because it's unusual to to let's say have a child that's deaf, uh, um, at least you know, in terms of numbers, you kind of you feel floored by it and you feel overwhelmed by it, but you also feel that there's you know that in a certain way it was very intentional and deliberate. Uh, and again, it, it knocks your personal uh, 
sense of stability over, but in, in that way, you kind of get humbled and, and, and feel that the world is much larger than than, the, than you could understand. And, and that's really, you know, it's kind of like, you know, get, being broken in a way that, that, that and then opens you up to, to much larger possibilities. Um, when when I think of the word humility, or uh, as you speak about it, I always think about it uh, in terms of being embraced by a loving, you know, t- to avoid the word God for people who are just so loaded. But yeah. I mean, the, the humility that I feel, which is, you know, essentially before call it the creative with a capital C force, you know, it's, it makes me feel really good and small, which is to say sometimes I'll do some performance where I, I kind of, I'm always looking for adulation ever since I was a kid. It's just, it's part of my DNA. Something was missing in me. So I'm looking for that. And then if I receive, it in a in a uh, big enough dose and feel somewhat sated what happens is the opposite of what you might think and leading to this word this idea of humility I become very small and I'm almost feel as though I'm erased and it's in that erasure uh, and in that humility of almost disappearing that I feel the most joyous. Yeah, yeah, because you, I guess in that moment you you break your your normal uh, small ways of, of seeing things or expecting. You know, uh, everybody has such a strong sense of agenda. I think in their life, and they really uh, almost like have a tunnel vision, and they're expecting it to to all go in this particular way that they they've hoped. And and again, when when it doesn't, of course, it's, it's uh, it's humbling and and everything crumb- crumbles in, in your life, but it, it, it's, it's opening to it to a much larger vista, to a, to a much larger possibilities. I think. Yeah, I'm going to go on to another poem here. Um, a lot of your stuff is, and and again, it's none of it is untoward. It's quite modulated, but there's a. It's uh, I don't know if it's ever been mentioned to you it's very sexually charged <laughs> um, well yeah. i mean i find the way that you write about about the subject is by not writing about it right. by om- yeah. by omission um and through what i, I wonder what you use your imagination well yes you know and and the tenderness with which you speak about your wife. I mean, it's all directed in this, you know, look, I have my opinions on this thing. I think that it's directed in, in, a, in the proper way. And somebody can say, well, who are you to judge what's proper and improper? I, you know, I don't know that I'm correct, but these are the assumptions that I have that to have the greatest fealty to one's spouse and to have honor and respect and also this high voltage electric attraction is good and appropriate. So I'm going to read one of these uh, shorter poems that to me just is, is really beautiful and powerful. 
and really, you know, sexually charged, as I said. I made a decision, is what it's called. Once before either of us was 20, in the cafeteria, I watched your mouth enclose itself around a plum. Because I was young and you were beautiful, I did not say, this is just a physical body nourishing itself. And I did not say, perhaps this is the other half of my soul. I made a decision with the young man's body and my soul continues to thank me. Now, only somebody who is versed to some extent in sort of mystical Judaism, as I know you are, would constantly walk around with this cognizance of this duality of, of body and spirit. And I myself resonate so much with these poems because I, I never or very rarely lose sight of this duality, this continual paradox of however you want to define the word soul. Again, it's become a trope and used in a lot of songs and so on. We don't really think about it. This energizing force, which is, you know, invisible, is creating momentum and life for this corporeal part of me, my meat sack. And the two are constantly wrestling. And so here you lay it out with your young man's eyes. You're looking at your wife, uh, you know, at her body. And the decision that you made, the overwhelming and compelling factors of, of sexuality that draw people together was responsible, you're saying, for something so beautiful in your life. And had you been too pious, and you might not have made this decision, and I kind of like it. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that's a good reading of the poem. I, I think, actually, um, it's interesting. Of course, uh, we have you know typical ways of thinking about religion as simply being uh, ascetic or trying to suppress physical urges and uh in some religions that that um is the, is the trope that's what's seen as the ideal as much as you can uh depart from your physical life uh that's the extent to which you'll be connected to a spirituality or, or some kind of divine truth but uh i think that um in the tradition that i'm that i'm uh operating out of that i'm rooted in uh the physical really uh, is not supposed to be suppressed. The physical is not supposed to be denounced. Uh, and, and so much so that sometimes the physical can offer uh, better insight than the, than the spiritual can, like like in this case. Um, and uh, in another one of the poems, I kind of talked about this idea a little bit more and, and flesh it out. Um, and, and that is the, the idea that sometimes uh, what appears to be a, just a physical desire, something crass or base, could actually really be the soul speaking through the body. Uh, so, and, and that's uh, kind of what I'm, I was touch on in another poem uh, in, in the book. Uh, and I think that's a really kind of um, uh, original and um, uh, paradigm-changing way to look at the physical, that the physical is not an enemy, the physical is not uh, a problem, 
and in the again in the Hasidic um, the Hasidic school of thought that that uh, that I study, uh, the physical is actually really higher than the spiritual, and the spiritual worlds are all just like a ladder, kind of to get down to this physical reality that we experience, and the purpose is to try to um, to find meaning in the physical experience and to try to uh, combine, if you can, the spiritual and the physical. So, uh, and I think that that uh, again, the problem that a lot of people have with religion is that it just seems so dogmatic. It just seems like uh, it's totally counterintuitive. It, all of our natural inclinations uh, are supposed to be suppressed. It almost seems like religion is just very repressive, and, and it's so impersonal, so not us. So uh, it, it's, it's refreshing to, to study uh, works that, that, that see it otherwise, that suggest that the deepest kind of spirituality or the deepest kind of meaning uh, can actually be found in, in the flesh, in physical life. Um, and then that, of course, translates into into my poetry. Uh, and I think it's kind of consistent, really, with a lot of contemporary poetry that you find today where the ambition is not to uh, arrive at a transcendence that negates the body or negates our ordinary lives, but tries to fill the ordinary with light to try to find a very profound meaning in the everyday experience. And, and I think it's very important uh, because today... Uh, so many people are uh, frustrated with their habituated life. They feel everything is mundane, and they always want something new and exciting. And poetry is a kind of antidote to that to that uh, virus, where uh, poetry tells us, wait a second, look closer at the, at the mundane experience, or look closer at the person you're in a relationship with, who perhaps you're taking for granted, and try to uh, celebrate them and and to depreciate them. So, uh, I mean, I think all art is, is kind of like that. It, it shines a very intense light on, on the ordinary experience, and even the physical experience um, uh, has something to teach us. You know, it, it seems like you mentioned the word antidote, and I, and I did like that <laughs> word a lot because, you know, that's, that denotes a poison has been given. And I, I, I do believe a poison has been given, and it's not only a poison in these times. I'm sure it existed in Greek and Roman times and in all times. Now we see it sped up so fast. And this is the idea of, and I, I, I call it for lack of a better way to describe it, is this kind of a quantitative mindset where you're looking at things in terms of how fast they go and how many likes and on Facebook and how many, uh, dollars are stacked up in the bank and everything has to do with the accumulation and the assumption there is the faster uh, the the number, the larger the number, the better things are. So we're always feeling a sense of lack and a sense of paucity because we can never keep up with it. Once you get 100, you do want 200. You're never sated. And the only way to create a remedy against that is to start looking, as you say, at the mundane or in, in, in another way, sort of look at what's around you. And I started doing an exercise. Um, you know, as you know, in our tradition, we have this little prayer that we teach our children. It's called Modea Ani, which I know you're familiar with. As soon as you open your eyes, as soon as you wake up in the morning, you say this very short prayer, which 
if you're focused on it, and many times it's just spouted out really perfunctorily, it's basically saying, you know, thank you for making me gain consciousness. And it's the most basic thing in the world. And lately I've been sort of in the light of antidotes, extending it out to say, to stay in bed for 25 seconds longer after having said that little prayer and sort of saying, I'm grateful for, and the things that I come up with are so small, but they're so life-changing, for a roof that doesn't leak. It's nothing <laughs> I, I would have thought about, but many people do have that. For hot water accessible with the turn of a faucet. You know, like tiny things like that for a refrigerator to keep milk cold. And it sounds like kind of a sort of a joke, but the introduction of this practice has begun to change my focus, begun to make me happier. I've swallowed some of this antidote. And, you know, your poems, getting back to them, I guess that's something that I find in those it's taking the wonder and the joy of the little things um this is one i really like uh it's called the soul in a body so the title goes right into the first line i'll say it again the soul in a body is like an old russian immigrant looking out his apartment's only window yes yes he says the landlord printed my name in block letters on the lobby directory decades ago. All correspondence has been forwarded to this address, but I am not from here. I am not from here at all. And that's just like for a person who I mentioned before walks around with a sort of a profound sense of the duality of his or her nature being one of body and soul this thing lands on me in such a beautiful way and i think i wrote to Yeshua at one time saying i don't remember if i use this exact analogy but like i am the old russian guy on the bench <laughs> and we're sitting next to each other and and what a joy it is you know these are these two people i always see in santa monica on the bluffs overlooking the ocean. They, they don't even really talk to each other. They just sit next to each other. Knowing that there's somebody in the world that can relate and understand to parts of yourself that are not easily articulated, certainly not broadcast in the news. It's such a warm feeling to have somebody giving voice to your intimate private thoughts. And, and that's really one of the powers of poetry. Yeah, I would say one of the, the best compliments you could get, the greatest compliments you get is, is not someone telling you that, you know, you said something new, but that you said something that they felt, but, but didn't never could articulate. You know, I keep thinking lately, and I, I could be wrong. I don't, there's just not there're not that many ideas in general and i wonder if there're more than like 16 of them you know birth <laughs> death you know uh taking a crap having sex children 
love, hate, war, speed, weight. I mean, how many are there? And and what can you say about them? You know, it's kind of getting deeper inside these established old ideas and, and creating a fresh means of articulating them that, that's all important. Yeah. Yeah. I think this poem also was kind of like about how the soul it does come into a body. There's an interesting teaching, it says, uh, against your will you live, and against your will you die, which you know has obvious meaning that you know nobody chooses to live, and then usually once they're alive they they don't they don't really want to die. But it, but it also is kind of a description of the soul's journey of the, of the soul's experience, where the soul is originally in a, in a kind of a spiritual reality. Uh, and then it gets exiled into the body, and it doesn't really. That's kind of counterintuitive for the soul. The last thing the soul would want to do would be, you know, put inside a body of somebody on a couch watching football. Whereas before it was, you know, in these in these lofty uh, perch in the heaven was experiencing divine light, and then you know it gets stuck trapped in, in, inside a body uh, in, a, in a fast food restaurant. So against 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 uh, against its will, it it, it, it lives. But it, you know, the the teaching also says against your will you die because even though it may be true that it's all counter to the soul's spiritual nature to be in this world, um, in this world uh, one experiences um, something that's not necessarily always beautiful or always perfect or inspiring. It's often very ordinary. But uh, in, in in certain traditions, in in, in the Hasidic tradition, the whole purpose. Uh, in, in, the, in the whole purpose of creating the heavens even was really so that a person could locate God or locate some kind of divinity or meaning or purpose in the ordinary experience in this world. So even though it's not always luminous and it's kind of messy and filtered through all kinds of human imperfection, that was the ultimate purpose. The teaching says that, that God wanted a dwelling place in, in the lowest realm, a home in this world. So even though it's totally against the grain of the soul's reality, the soul knows that that's really its whole purpose. And therefore, it comes down despite its, uh, it being antithetical to everything that it enjoys. And it doesn't want to leave because it knows, although in a certain sense it's not enjoyable, this was the whole great scheme. This was the whole great plan of everything. Uh, and so therefore, against its will, it dies. It, it doesn't really want to leave, even though it's somewhat uncomfortable and a counterintuitive place for, for the soul to be. So it's not like a prisoner, but it, it it also kind of wants to be here willingly. This is the thing that, you know, is kind of the basis of all literature. It's the basis of all film and plays. It's it's very similar to a reenactment of the soul coming into the world, struggling against the vicissitudes and, you know, the challenges and overcoming. And were there not these challenges you know, there would not be this contrast and our achievements would mean very little. They would not be called achievements. They're basically called, you know, eternal hanging around on the couch. And, right. you know, it's it's this, and, and the people that we love that somehow we're drawn to are people who have, with, you know, great dignity or great resilience, overcome their struggles. And we have, I think, as a species, great respect for these people because in some way we intuit that they're 
purveying or somehow evincing kind of this larger struggle, this this grander, broader struggle of a soul coming into the world. We we see purpose almost meted out before us and we're kind of drawn to it. And I like how so many of your poems are they're talking about this. Here's another one. I'm reading some of the short ones so I don't have to read too long, you know. I'm reading you want me to poetry. read one? You want me to read one of them? Yeah, I do want you to read one. I, I'm on uh, page fifty eight, contemporary poets. I wish you would. Okay, fifty eight. Contemporary poets. Has there ever been a group of agnostics so intent upon meaning? in every car door shutting in the cold, each turn of belief as it descends? Do they believe more than us, dozing off in the back of the synagogue? Now, why don't you uh, tell me what you think, and I'll tell you what I think. <laughs> what, what do I think was going on in this poem? Uh-huh. Well, I, I guess, you know, it, it's it's interesting. I, I, most... Um, most people, most poets uh, consider themselves agnostic or the poetry culture is a, is a very secular culture mm-hmm. um, and, and uh, they consider themselves disbelievers. Um, but then sometimes, unfortunately, you might go, just like the poem describes, you might go into a synagogue and, and, and meet people who, who describe themselves as believers, but, you know, they're, they're falling asleep. Uh, so I, I might say that uh, although some poets might not like this, me saying this, they might be very deep believers, uh, although they might not couch it in the traditional kind of terms. And maybe even, you know, they, I think that certain poets intuitively sense a kind of profundity or spirituality or meaning in, in very ordinary things. And they almost insist that, that every single thing has purpose to it. And that's why they focus on such minute detail. Uh, in, in tradition, you would, you would call that divine providence, uh, that, you know, that uh, is a force beneath each thing, and each thing is happening for a reason, and it's all part of a much larger plan. And if even one, you know, speck of dust wasn't there, then this larger plan would all collapse. Um, so a poet, a contemporary secular poet, might uh, not identify it as, as divine, but they may just be attuned to, you know, what what a religious person might call divine. Maybe they're just using different terms uh, for it. Maybe the, the term God, like you said, is off-putting. Or it seems too dogmatic. But I, I think that, you know, there's a kind of some poets have a you know a very profound sensitivity, and they're feeling something remarkable beneath the surface. I might call it God, and and they might have no name for it, just some kind of energy, but it might not really be uh, two different forces. Well, I got, you know, I, I really took that from, from this poem and, and this idea of, you know, the word religious, and there's so many words that are, are so horrible. I mean, and they're horrible because they're, they're used and they're overused and they're taken for granted and their meaning is not even considered the word creativity too, for example, is just like enough already with that word. Uh, you know, nobody's in pausing to think about what it is. I won't go into that right now, but staying with religion, um, I find it poignant 
and slightly ironic that the Hebrew language doesn't really have a word for religion, which is to mm-hmm. say that there is life and and there is in, in one corner or on one day of the week, there's religious life that is compartmentalized away. And once you start introducing, by the way, I heard uh, Bernard-Henri Lévy's speech in Los Angeles, the genius of Judaism. You know, I had some issues with with the whole thing, but he did mention this idea too that I forget who the great uh, mystic was who said, you know, uh, in the in the 1700s in Europe that the word religion just needs to be abolished altogether because it's antithetical paradoxically to religion. It's like wait a minute, <laughs> there is life. There is existence with all its wonder and tragedy and beauty and glory, and there is only that. And and to say that we are religious uh, is to say that we're simply aware of the depth and the miracle and the wonder of life around us. And but we're not aware of it. And here's here's what I wanted to get at: is with your people falling asleep in the back of the synagogue. I almost you, Yeah, I always do. I mean, you can't be a, if we want to use the word religious or let's say observant, which I do like that word better, or a poet aware of the profundity of life, you can't do that 24 hours a day. You just, right. you can't. Religion is not, and, and using the word religious just because we have to now, it's not a static condition. No one can call themselves religious and be truthful about it. What you could say is, from time to time, I have an awareness of the profundity of life. I try my best to work on reclaiming it. But many times, and perhaps most of the time, it slips through my grasp. Does that sound fair? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think, again, like one of the reasons why there's such a stigma attached to religion is because it's often presented or thought of it as simply a kind of system that suppresses our natural inclinations, which doesn't sound very appealing. You know, this is a system that tries to prevent you from being yourself almost. Um, So, uh, and again, I don't think that's the way that it has to be. Uh, I I think that... um, there's an interesting idea, a mystical idea called uh, running and returning, uh, mm-hmm. which maybe speaks to, to our conversation where uh, um, there's an idea that um, it really starts with, uh, with in, in kind of mystical worlds where there's uh, all these angels and they're kind of yoked to this um, chariot where in the, in the sea of the chariot is a divine figure and they experience these they see this divine light and they um, disyoke themselves from the chariot and they run to that light and then the, and then the light dissipates and they go back to the chariot and, and that experience happens over and over again. It's called running. They're running towards this inspiration to this light and they return to their spot of the chariot, like their obligations, their responsibilities, their 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 daily life. And, and all of existence is said to be to mirror that kind of process of the running and returning. Everything flows out of that. So that even in a, a religious person's life, um, there's moments of the day that are set aside for meditation um, and prayer and disengagement from uh, worldly experiences. 
And then there's the obligation and the, and the responsibility to go back into the world and to try to find the divine, not in the disengaged moment, but in the in the mundane, in the earthly. And, and, and in the Hasidic tradition, uh, you know, there's a question, which which is superior? Is the moment of running away from the world and disengaging from the world superior? Or is the moment where you return to your ordinary experiences and your daily life um, in, in the mundane? And, and the, the idea is that uh, returning is more important than, than, than running. Running is just for the sake of gaining inspiration so that when you go into the ordinary experience in, the, in, in your daily life, you're able to see the purposefulness of it all. You're able to kind of look at it with a clear, with a clear lens. So these quote-unquote religious experiences and traditions, prayer and um, and all kinds of rituals, those experiences are not even the end of themselves. So often uh, uh, we see religion presented as that that's the be-all and end-all. But in, in, in other traditions, like the Hasidic one, those are just a means to an end. Those spiritual moments, those moments of inspiration are just there so that you can then go back into your everyday life and be with your partner or your wife and appreciate them and go back into your workplace and try to uh, be a good human being. And that really is, is the purpose. So I think uh, when when you see religion in that light, that you know tradition and prayer and ritual are kind of means to an end to being a better person um, and to being a better human being and to uh, refining the world and, and finding meaning in the world, it's not seen as so counter to one's whole nature. It seems to be a world-embracing kind of way of looking at theology. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and look, all religious practices are not the same. So, I mean, it's not like you can lump them in. This Actually, they are. Be... They're all the same. They're all the same. Tell me how. No, just joking. No, just joking. I was going to say, I'm like, what? We're going to have a challenge on the Big News podcast. I don't believe they're the same, but I I love this no. idea that you mentioned of this running and returning, you know, being yoked to, as you say, to prayer or meditation. These are like preparatory experiences. And there's probably, it's not an accident they call it religious practice. That in other words, if you look at it in that way, you're practicing you're, because it's a lot easier to maintain your equilibrium when you're meditating or praying or something than when you're getting, uh, you know, let's say some advice that's counter to your opinion from a significant other or whatever it is that you find challenging. Those experiences can be made much better for all involved if you've practiced and gain some strength from these preparatory experiences, you know, of of coming back. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. Another way to to say it is maybe you know if you if you don't see the mundane as very purposeful, um, because you don't disengage from it, sometimes you'll just kind of get get caught in the quicksand of it, and you'll be pulled down in all in all the the struggles of it. But if you uh, temporarily disengage from it and gain perspective, then you can uh, re-immerse in it, but with much more um, purpose and focus and, and with the right priorities. I mean, I know that in our tribe's tradition, asceticism, you know, for extended periods for n no other purpose than to gain personal enlightenment is somewhat 
and justifiably frowned upon. Uh, in other words, we see people in my community here on the west side of Los Angeles, pretty much everyone's got like a yoga mat under their arm and they're shopping at Whole Foods and they're coming back with the most expensive flaxseed oil. And, and all that's great, but there's strangely a sense I see that that there's they're doing something righteous. Yeah. And it, it's not righteous. It might be great for your body and great for your health, but I mean, it's as you said, it's a means to an end. And the end is how are you engaging? And I'm not saying these people are not good at it, but how are you engaging with other people? How are you helping to benefit other people, the people yeah, around yeah, the, you? The, great, the, greatest, the greater spirituality, in other words, maybe to do something for somebody else that you don't feel like doing. Yeah, yeah. Pushing yourself, you know, out of, you mentioned before, our habits are habituated. It's really hard. I mean, believe me, I'm older than you. It gets harder <laughs> and harder because, you know, maybe you're lacking the energy that you had to, or maybe you are more afraid of failure or you've just become inured to not moving ahead. So, yeah, you know, you really have to yeah. push yourself. Or yeah. life's, life's responsibilities seem to constantly be building up more and more. You know, as I'm getting older, the family, you, you see, you know, it's just it's amazingly how, it's amazing that life's minutia, life's responsibilities can just continuously, continuously uh, get, you get submerged in them. They just pull you down. Um, and again, that's like one, I guess that's one of the unique uh, powers of art that that, not that it will help you escape, but that it could actually be even be a more direct answer that it could kind of help you see those things as purposeful, help you um, find meaning in them. Well, I must say now I'm going to kind of, you know, sort of wind this thing up, and uh, and part of it will be very complimentary to you. Um, <laughs> I I think that as a poet, it's also a means to an end. It's not just carrying around a bunch of flaxseed. Um, and I don't know that every poet feels this burden of responsibility, but it, it seems like the things that you put into the world have the ability, if, you know, given the proper context and so on, to really change people's lives for the better. And part of that better is to sort of immerse themselves with gratitude into their immediate surroundings and start looking at the wonder of small things and start examining the relationships and looking at the beauty and the serendipity of having been put together with this particular person and trying to look through the world, which I believe is accessible through the eyes of a poet who is seeing the profundity and the wonder or at least attempting to returning and running and coming back with this new insight to his or her daily activities. So I want to, you know, wish you and give you a blessing for continued success. I am such a huge fan of yours. I really want you to know that I'm looking constantly for things 
music, you know, books, teachings, things that move me. And when I find them, as I found in your work, it's such a huge gift to me. So I feel a bit like the two Russians on the bench. And I hope we, we can continue this more. You know, I'll put on the website where people can find your work. And I hope this is only the first of many conversations, Yoshua. Yeah, me too, me too. Thank you so much. All right, take care, and I will talk to you okay. soon. And thank you guys for listening to the Big Muse podcast with our guest, Yoshua November. Proudly, I call him a poet. Take care. <laughs> Be well. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>